The following is a message from Pastor Ellis Orozco of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Amen. Thank you, Andy and the choir and the orchestra and, uh, and Mac. Thank you. Mac is our intern, as Andy was saying, from uh, Great Britain. I was kind of only halfway kiddingly asking him if I could write the sermons and let him preach them because he has that accent, you know, that just that British accent that sounds so authoritative, so, so official, so spiritual, so King James-ish, right? And so, <laughs> Mac, we love you. We love your accent. We were talking about that and the way we pronounce certain words in Texas as well. He said, we have an accent too. And I told him, no, no we don't. We don't have. <laughs> but uh, I, I let him know that the, the English did invent the language, but we've improved on it here in Texas. <laughs> we've made it better. Elevated it. <clears throat> well, it's good to see everyone this morning. Merry Christmas. It is Christmas. Welcome online. Those of you who are joining us online and... Uh, We're just so glad that you're a part of our worship time, and we're going to go now to God's Word. We're going to continue worshiping Him by going to God's Word. This is a moment of worship for us, because we know that God speaks to us through the power of His Word. And so we want to go to that first Christmas season. We want to experience that first Christmas season through the eyes of of Mary. Uh, It is Christmas. I I love at Christmas time to read the letters that children are writing to Santa, or actually nowadays... The letters children are texting to Santa, I think. But a couple of letters that came up on my radar screen here. Um, The first one kind of, I'm a little worried about this kid. Uh, Dear Santa, you better, and he he underlines the word better, you better bring my pony this year or there will be consequences. The underlying will. We might need to put him on the FBI watch list. I don't know. But I really like the, the letters that children write to Santa where they're asking for, just asking for the impossible. Just in this childlike, innocent spirit of belief, they're asking Santa for the impossible. One a little girl named Lily said, Santa, I have never even seen a reindeer eye to eye. Please leave Rudolph on my doorstep. Sincerely, Lily. Uh, or there's Chrissy who said, Dear Santa Claus, I'm so sorry of what I did in the past. And thank you for the Christmas letter. I love it. But what I was wanting for Christmas this year is $53 billion. <laughs> and please write another letter. Uh, I love you, Chrissy. Uh, or this one, Dear Santa, uh, there is only one thing I want for Christmas. That one thing is to bring Leonardo DiCaprio to my house because I think he's cute and I would like to meet him. If you can do that, I would be so grateful. Yeah, so the impossible. That's actually what I wanted us to think about and reflect on today as we go to Mary's story. I wanted us to think and reflect on the idea of the impossible. I asked you last week to begin uh, thinking about reflecting on three questions that I wanted us to live with through this Christmas season leading up to, to Christmas. Those three questions are, what difference does Jesus make in my life? What great battle or struggle am I wrestling with today? And what great joy have I experienced? I want us to continue to think about those three questions as a framework, but also to lay over them today the idea of the impossible. If you'll stay with me through the whole sermon, I think you'll understand by the end how we're going to lay over those three questions, the idea of the impossible. So let's go to Mary's story. Luke chapter 1. Verses 26 to 38, and this is what the Word of God says. 
In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So this is the moment in scripture where we meet Mary. Before this, we know nothing about her. But after just two verses, the very first two verses of this passage, we actually know quite a bit about her. We know, for instance, that her name is Mary. Uh, We know that she comes or lives in a very small village called Nazareth in a region called Galilee. And we know that she is a virgin who is betrothed or promised to, engaged to, uh, a man named Joseph. Now, the most striking thing I think about Mary right off the bat when we meet her is that Mary lives in a very different world than the world we live in. I I want us to to experience what Mary experienced that first Christmas season. I want us to, to walk a bit in her shoes so that we can look at this idea of the impossible laid over the questions we're asking ourselves. But in order to do that, you have to understand, first of all, that Mary lived in a very different world than the world we live in. And so to fully understand her experience that first Christmas season, I want to back up a little bit and give you a little bit of context. I want, to, I want us to, to remind you of the world that she lived in so that we can get the full impact of the impossibility of her situation. So in Mary's world, a little girl would grow up under the household, the authority of her father. She lived under the authority of her father until that point where she was a marriageable age, and then she would move from her father's household to her husband's household and live under the authority of her husband. So the little girl was always under the authority of either her father or her husband. And when she was under the authority of her father as a little girl, her father had the right to promise her to, to to engage her to, to betroth her to any man he chose. He would choose her husband, and he would enter into what was a legally binding contract with the future husband for, on behalf of his daughter, and he could, he could marry her to anyone. And she had no say in the decision. She had no right of refusal until she reached the age of 12 and a half. Because at 12 and a half in the Jewish culture was the signal that you had now become an adult. So little boys had their bar mitzvah at 12. So at 12 and a half, a boy became a man. 
And he did, in that culture, become a man. He was doing man things. It was estimated that King David was about 14 or so when he fought Goliath. He was 14 years old, but he was doing man things. He was fighting in a war, you understand. So they became adults at about 12 and a half, 13. So that at 12 and a half, a little girl, a young girl, she would be considered now a young woman, gained certain rights. She had certain rights of inheritance at 12 and a half. And at 12 and a half, she had the right of refusal. Um, in marriage, you understand. So, as you might imagine, most Jewish fathers in that context tried to get their daughters married off before the age of 12 and a half or promised to someone before the age of 12 and a half because there was money involved with this. There was a bride price, right? There was a dowry. And so most fathers tried to match their girls up, their little girls up with a, a gentleman by the time of 12 and a half. Now, they wouldn't go live with them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't actually be married to them yet, uh, they were too young, and so they would, they would stay in the father's house, but they were, they were under contract. And eventually, when they re- reached the appropriate age in that culture, about 14 or so, uh, they would then move from their father's house to their husband's house. This is the situation Mary was in. She was betrothed. She had been promised. Apparently, Mary's father had earlier promised her to a man named Joseph, and she was in that waiting period. She was not... She was, she was promised to someone and she had no right of refusal yet. And, and then at some point later on, she would go and actually begin to live with him and they would consummate the marriage. Uh, that's the situation she's in. So the second thing I want to say that's striking about Mary's situation is that she is powerless. She is totally and utterly powerless. And for us moderns, looking back at it, we would even say it seems like it's hopeless, but you have to be careful about projecting your modern ideas onto the ancient text. She may have been powerless, but she was not in any way, shape, or form hopeless. She was powerless. And you can see it. You can see it in the conversation she has with the angel. If you kind of read between the lines, so the angel appears to Moses, I mean, to Moses, to Mary. He appears to Mary. He appeared to Moses too, but that's back... He appears to, to Mary, and he greets her. He says, greetings, you who are most highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now, that seems like a pretty positive greeting to me, right? I mean, if an angel appears to me and says, you are highly favored, God is with you, I, that's a pretty positive greeting. But Mary reacted negatively. Luke tells us, and he's very specific, that Mary was troubled, not by the angel, It's not the appearance of the angel that troubled her or scared her or worried her. She was troubled with his words. She was troubled by the greeting. He says, greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary's reaction seems to be to take a step back and say, why are you calling me highly favored? I'm not wanting to say that Mary was cynical, but but she seemed to have a negative reaction to the idea of being called highly favored. And, and I want you to see that in the way Luke describes the words of the angel, it's, it's very clear that the angel is not saying you are going to be highly favored. He doesn't tell her that she's one who will be highly favored. The angel is not saying to Mary, your life has been miserable up to this point, but guess what? Things are going to change. You are now going to be highly favored. That's not what the angel is saying at all. 
What the angel is saying to Mary is, you are, have always been, from the time you were fashioned in your mother's womb, you have always been and are to this day and forever will be highly favored. It's who you are, not who you're going to become someday when your circumstances change, not who you're going to become when God does something great with you, but you are right now in your present state, highly favored. You may begin to understand why Mary takes a step back and says, wait a minute. Mary's reaction, he says, you are highly favored. Mary says, you have the wrong address. Check your paperwork. Surely you mean someone else. It seems to me that one of the biggest struggles that we're having today, one one of the biggest struggles that Christians have today is that we just don't feel highly favored. We don't feel in our bones like we're the highly favored ones of God. And sometimes we don't even feel in our bones that God is with us. Oh, you'll, you'll, find, you'll find arrogant Christians who, who are, who are self-righteous and holier than thou and look down on people. You'll find those. But I think for the most part, in my experience in talking to people today, is that the problem with most Christians is this struggle and this battle of, of never feeling like you're good enough. Jesus tells that story about the two men who were praying at the temple. And one of them is a Pharisee who is part of the elite religious group. He's very well respected and highly respected in that culture as a religious person. He is a, a keeper of the law. He is, uh, he is high and elevated spiritually. And he's praised this prayer and Jesus describes the prayer and it is this absolutely arrogant prayer where he's thanking God that he's not like other people and he's thanking God that he keeps the law and that he is so good and on and on and on he goes about all of his goodness. And, and the other man who really isn't even, even at the temple, it says he's at a distance. He didn't feel good enough to even go to inside the temple. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like not good enough to come to church? Maybe you had a bad week and you don't feel good enough to be in this room. This is this man. He doesn't feel good enough. So he stands at a distance. He, he beats his chest. And this man was a tax collector, Jesus tells us. And he beats his chest and he says, oh, what a terrible, awful person I am. And he probably was. Terrible and awful. And Jesus says, he asked the question, which one of these two men do you think got forgiven? Which one of these two men do you think God really listened to? And you understand, I think that the, the struggle with most Christians today that I talk to is not so much the arrogance. Maybe it was that at one time, but it's not feeling good enough. And we see Mary here. And the angel says, you are and have always been highly favored one. And her response is, you must, you must have the wrong address. You have to be talking about someone else. Right? So how do you live with the message of the Christmas story? Because the message of the Christmas story, the surprising, amazing, miraculous message of the Christmas story is that you are and have always been, and from the time you were fashioned in your mother's womb, have been highly favored by God. When, the, when John in his gospel decides to tell the Christmas story, he decides to do it in metaphor, where Jesus is, he calls the word. 
And so he tells the Christmas story from the perspective of the word, who is Jesus. And it's this beautiful metaphor of the first Christmas where he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he said, he said, and the word became flesh. There's the manger scene with Mary and Joseph and the animals and the baby. You understand the word became flesh. That's the manger scene. And he says, and, and he came to those who were his own and his own did not recognize him. And the world did not receive him. He says, but, the, but to those who did receive him, that would be you, that would be me, I hope. To those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of flesh or human or, or husband's will, but born of God. That's the Christmas story in John. That's the Christmas message. That's the manger scene in John. You now get to become children of God. And that's something that's easy for us maybe to understand. Okay, I get that, Ellis. And maybe even to say, yeah, I believe that. But what's harder is to now go out and start living like you believe it. Start living like you believe that you truly are highly favored one. Born the child of God because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus came on that first Christmas morning. This is what Mary is struggling with. And I dare say it's what many of us struggle with. It's not to to understand or even say that we believe it. But it's to live like we believe it. Like you are the child of God. And then the angel drops the bomb, doesn't he? He says to her, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And you now will become pregnant. You will conceive. And you will have a son. And you will name him Jesus. Yeshua. Yahweh saves the Lord saves because he will sit on David's throne and he will rule over an eternal kingdom and he will be called the son of God. And that's when Mary says, okay, time out. Um, how is this possible? She says, I'm, I'm virgin. Right. It's interesting, the word she uses for virgin is not actually the Greek word for virgin. Um, it's, a, it's a euphemism she uses, um, which literally means I've never known a man to know as in the biblical sense, right? The word to know. Um, it means she's a virgin. I'm not saying she's not a virgin. Please, clearly, okay? Don't accuse me of preaching heresy. She, Mary was a virgin. <laughs> Mary was a virgin. All I'm saying is that she uses this euphemism for her virginity to say I've never known a man and that euphemism, certain Jewish scholars have pointed out that that euphemism can, it certainly means virgin, and Mary was a virgin, but, but it can also mean I'm, I'm not capable of being with a man. She was in that place between, right? She may have been saying, even if I were to marry Joseph tomorrow, I'm not yet physically ready. I can't. Do you see the impossibility of her situation? I can't. It's impossible. And the angel responds. He answers her. And his answer is in two parts. In the first part, he, he says to her, what does he say? The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you 
So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Well, honestly, that's not much of an answer. I mean, I'm sorry, look, I want details, right? I want a diagram. I want, a, I want an explanation of how this is going to happen. It's impossible. And the angel's answer is basically, don't worry about it, it's a God thing. It's a God thing, right? He uses the word overshadow. He says that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that word overshadow is used a lot in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, almost always of God. And it's this idea of the mysterious aspect of God, the mystery of God enveloping you. You will live in the shadow of the Almighty. It's this idea of of God's mysterious shadow coming over you, enveloping you, and putting you into this safe place. It's a safe place, and it's a mysterious place. And frankly, we moderns don't do well with the mysterious. We don't. We want everything explained. I mean, we want details. We want charts and maps and diagrams. And we, we, want, we want everything to be explained. Drives me crazy when people start trying to explain how the miracles, especially in the Old Testament how the miracles could have happened scientifically. Well, there's a way, you know, if the, the Red Sea parted, it could have been the winds coming down, and if the winds hit it, just stop it. Oh, oh, Jonah, yeah, there was a man on the coast of South Africa who got swallowed by a fish, and he was full. It, it's happening. Stop it. You're ruining it. It's a, it's a mystery. Why can't we just live in the mystery? We have so demystified Christianity. We have so demystified our faith and we're poorer because of it. Because there is this joy and this awe, this childlike innocence about living, even if it's just for a moment, living in the mystery. Why can't we just live in the mystery? We went to New York City talking about mystery. Um, We went to New York City this Thanksgiving to visit my daughter who's living there now going to school there and took the grandkids, right? And it, it, it's all completely documented on Facebook if you want to see the whole trip, um, as you do nowadays, right? But we went to New York City, and for my, for my granddaughters, um, uh, Keely's age 13 and Eden is seven. I love, the, I love seven. It's great. So for both of them, this was their first time to go on an airplane. The first time. Actually, the first time out of the state of Texas, which is not a big deal. There's nothing else much to see out there after Texas. But <laughs> it was their first time on an airplane. And so I, I was looking forward to, to watching them experience their first time on an airplane. And Eden sat beside me, and of course she wanted a window seat, so I gave her the window seat. I've been on hundreds of airplanes. First time. And watching her experience that, that takeoff for the first time. Do you understand the awe, the joy? Now, I could have explained to her, I know how, why an airplane takes off. I know the aerodynamics of, of, of flight. I understand why an airplane can take off. And I could have sat before and just sat her down and said, now I need to give you an engineering lesson, Eden, on why an airplane can take off, right? No, stop it. Don't do that. She'll learn someday why an airplane can take off. But right now, let her experience the mystery, right? The joy, the awe. 
And when we try to explain every single thing about our faith, we lose something, don't we? We lose something that the ancients had and they understood. What the angel is basically saying to Mary is, look, I can't explain it. I'll try to explain it in words you can understand. Old Testament words. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is, the, this is it's mysterious, but it's a safe place. You're living under the shadow of the Almighty, and it's a safe place for you, Mary. And I can't explain it, but it's going to happen. Right? And, and he... His second part of his answer is almost as if he's anticipating. He knows what Mary is thinking. He knows the struggle that's going on inside of her. And so he says, look, believe me, even your own relative Elizabeth, this is the second part of the answer, right? It's a proof of what I just told you. I just told you, basically the angel says, I just told you nothing is impossible with God. And here's the proof. Even your your relative Elizabeth, who in her old age is now six months pregnant. Later, Mary will go to check it out and make sure that it was true. And she'll find out it's true. But right now the angel says, even your your relative Elizabeth in her old age, everyone said she couldn't have a baby and now she's having a baby. Isn't that the whole story of the Old Testament? (laughs) The patriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, right? And the rest. He says, nothing is impossible with God. And if you don't believe me, just go ask your relative, your cousin Elizabeth. Nothing is impossible with God. With God. I've actually lived with three questions through this Christmas season. What difference? What difference does Jesus make in my life? Nothing is impossible with Jesus. What great struggle, what great battle, what great pain am I dealing with right now? Nothing is impossible with God. And what great joy does God want me to experience even in the midst of my pain, even in the midst of my suffering, even in the midst of my difficulty and my wrestling and my struggle? What great joy does God want me to experience? Nothing is impossible with God. Back in 2004, I was pastoring in uh, McAllen, Texas, Calvary Baptist Church in McAllen. And now in McAllen, in the Rio Grande Valley, if you've ever been there, how many of you have been to the Rio Grande Valley? I know a bunch of you have because we do missions there. Okay, yeah. So you'll understand when I say in the Rio Grande Valley, there are two seasons, hot and scorching hot. Those are the two seasons. It was not uncommon at all for me on Christmas Day, December 25th in the valley, to go out in my shorts and T-shirt. I know you're getting an image. It's not good, but that, I, I would do that. It was just everyone was doing it, right? It's your, your, your shorts and T-shirt on Christmas Day. That's... That's McCallum, that's the valley. There was a family in my church, a a husband and wife. Um, They had two children, a little girl who was about 10, a little boy, seven. And the the mother was dying uh, of cancer. She had breast cancer. And she had been fighting it for a while. And the doctors basically said, there's nothing more we can do. And they weren't sure whether or not she was even going to make it to the end of the year uh, in 2004. And she was very close to her little daughter, 10 years old, and they would pray every night. And the little daughter began to pray for a white Christmas. This is what she wanted for her mother and her. She wanted a white Christmas in McAllen, Texas. It never, ever even comes close 
to snowing in McAllen, Texas. The father was really upset about this. He came to me, confided in me what was happening. He said, look, I'm thinking about taking the family up north somewhere, maybe looking at the, at the meteorologist report and see where it might snow to give her this. I want to give her this. And he says, but I don't have any money. They, all their money was going to medical costs. And he says, they finally decided they just couldn't do it. And they just tried to prepare this young girl as she was praying every night for a white Christmas with her mother. It would be, as it turns out, it would be her last Christmas with her mother. Her mother would make it through the year, but not much longer. Um, and she was praying for this. And they, they tried to prepare her for the idea that some things, you know, God doesn't always, you know, it, there are some things that are just impossible. And then it happened. It happened at 4 a.m. on December 25th, 2004, it snowed in McAllen, Texas. In fact, it snowed all along the Rio Grande Valley from, from Brownsville all the way past Rio Grande City, about a 30-mile wild strip. In fact, not only that, but if you looked at the meteorologist map that year, it didn't snow anywhere else in the entire United States on December 25th. There was this, if you look at December 25th, 2004, go Google it, Google it, and you see the meteorological map, there's just one little strip of white that goes right alongside the Rio Grande River, about 30 miles wide, where it actually snowed, and nowhere else in the United States did it snow but there. If that little family had gone somewhere else to look for the snow, they would have missed the miracle. Now, you explain that to me. Now, I, I can explain why it snows. Any meteorologist can explain the, the, the conditions necessary up there for snow, right? But you explain why it snowed at 4 a.m. on December 25th, 2004, when a little girl had been praying with all her heart for a white Christmas, her last Christmas with mother. You try explaining that, and whatever lame scientific explanation you come up with will never replace the explanation in that little girl's heart, which is nothing is impossible with God. Amen? And why can't we just live with that? Why can't we this year, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, let's just live with that. Let's live with the mystery. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, your love and your power in our lives. We recognize in our brains that we are that you call us your children, that we are children of God, children of the Most High, highly favored ones, fashioned from the time we were in our mother's wombs to be yours and all yours. We, we can say that, and we understand, I think we understand that, that you say that. But help us now to go out and live that truth in our lives. Help us to live as highly favored ones, as blessed ones, and help us in that blessedness to be a blessing to others, to love others well, even as we love you well. And Father, help us with the mysterious, that which our modern minds can't explain but want to explain. Maybe someday we'll have an explanation. But for now, help us to live in the mystery. We love you, Father. We honor you and we praise you this Christmas season. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.